Do you feel controlled, belittled, or isolated by a partner or family member? This is domestic abuse, and it is never your fault. Help is always available, and you are not alone. You do not deserve abuse. You deserve support. If you are experiencing domestic abuse, ask for Annie in pharmacies, showing the Ask for Annie logo to get immediate help to call the police or support services. For free helplines, support and advice, visit gov.uk forward slash domestic hyphen abuse. This is an explicit episode with adult themes and language. Please put your earphones on and listen to this in private. I'd like to invite all of you to take part in a little exercise with me. Don't worry, you don't have to get up. Please close your eyes for a few moments and imagine yourself in a dark box, a confined space with no light, no sound except that of your own breathing, enough air that you can breathe, but not enough that you can breathe freely. You feel trapped, suffocated, and helpless. Now imagine you're going to be in that box forever. That is what abuse feels like. Now please open your eyes. I'm Samra Zafar, and I'm a survivor of abuse. Salams everyone, and welcome to another episode of Not Another Mom Pod. Today we're continuing our series of episodes covering the various types of abuse. Today's episode will be heart-hitting but inspiring as we discuss child or teen marriages that take place under pressure and under the legal age of consent. We'll be speaking to Samra Zafar, whose story of being a teen bride and survivor of domestic abuse became a best-selling memoir in Canada. Today, Summer will talk to us through her journey of survival and self-discovery. Over 12 million girls are forced into child marriages each year worldwide. Most, if not all, are abused, raped and silenced. A handful of these women rise up and start to defend themselves, whether that's by seeking help or speaking up. It's these handful of remarkable women that give courage to others to make real change. Samra Zafar, alhamdulillah, is one of these remarkable women. Samra is an award-winning international speaker, best-selling author, consultant, educator and entrepreneur who advocates for gender equity, inclusion and human rights. She has been recognised among the top 100 most powerful women in Canada and a top 25 Canadian immigrant. Her book, A Good Wife, Escaping the Life I Never Chose, is an international bestseller and is now being adapted to a TV series. After arriving in Canada as a child bride and escaping a decade of abuse, Samra pursued her education as a single mother working multiple jobs and graduated as a top student from the University of Toronto with several awards and scholarships. She began sharing her story to raise awareness about gender-based violence and has since become a globally recognized expert on equity and inclusion, violence against women and mental health. Her speaking portfolio impressively includes three TEDx talks and speeches to Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada, UNICEF, Yale University, Amnesty International and many leading non-profits, corporations and universities around the world. Her work has been extensively featured in both Canadian and international media, including Washington Post, Huffington, Global News, Yahoo and more. All of her works impacting tens of millions of people worldwide. Samra, before we start, can I just say I'm so intimidated to be talking to you here today. And that's a, a bit of an understatement. Mashallah, you're so inspiring and you've achieved so much despite the awful beginnings you've had. I just want to say how super proud we are of you and what you've achieved. There are no words. Oh, really. thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited for this conversation. Oh, we are as well. If we can take it back to the beginning, 
I believe you were raised in Abu Dhabi. How old were you when you moved to the UAE? And what was your life like before you were married? I was a baby. I, would, I think I was seven months. My father was already there. He was working in uh, an oil company. And, and then my mom and I moved there when I was a baby. And I grew up there. That's kind of what I consider home, at least from a growing up standpoint. Life was a very small town kind of life. Uh, we didn't live in the city. We lived about two hours away in a small town called Ruiz, where everybody knew everybody. Everyone was in each other's business. Nothing stayed mm -hmm. hidden. Nothing stayed under wraps. Like there was two schools in the town. One was an Arab school uh, or three schools. One was an Arab school. One was an Indian school. And then the British school, which is where I went. Growing up was very confusing. I think that's the word that I would say, because on one hand, you know, I was always being encouraged to pursue my education and I was extremely passionate about education from a very young age. I was one of those annoying students who would get upset about the 1% that I didn't get versus the, you know, the 99% that I did get on the test. <laughs> so drove everyone nuts. But I was just very outspoken, very ambitious, very passionate about school. But on the other hand, I was always here these messages about patriarchy and gender equality. And I was being told that, oh, yeah, it's good to dream. Just don't expect them to come true. Don't forget you're a girl. Or it's good to dream. Just don't dream too big because you're a girl. And I was a bit of a rebel yeah. in that sense, because I would always push and I would say, so what if I'm a girl? I can go play cricket. For example, when I wasn't allowed to play <laughs> cricket outside with the boys anymore, I started a girls cricket team in my school. And then I uh, launched a school newspaper where uh, I would share all my radical ideas about gender equality and whatnot. So I was always a bit of an envelope pusher and I would question things. And mm -hmm. it confusing the word because, you know, on one hand, I'm like, okay, so I can do anything I want. And then on the other hand, I was being told, no, you can't do anything you want because of your gender. Um, Samra, where were those messages coming from? Was it from, you know, your parents, extended family, the community in general? You know, who was it putting limitations on your dreams and defining those roles? I think all of those things. All of those people, because on one hand, my father, for example, was always saying things like, one day my daughter is going to be a top student at a top university. And so I'm the eldest of four girls and I have three younger sisters. So he would always say, I don't have four daughters. I have four sons. They can do whatever they want. But on the other hand, I would always also hear things from my parents like, well, you're a girl. We can't really send you abroad somewhere to university on your own. Who's going to take care of you? Who's going to be your guardian and your chaperone? And so they were always these limits placed and, and especially from the extended family because whenever we would go to Pakistan for the summer vacations and whatnot that people would say about me and to my parents in front of me and my parents would be like talking about it with them as if yeah they agree were things like oh, she's growing so tall. Uh, how will we find a guy for her? Let's take her to the doctor and get her some medicines so, so oh, that wow. she doesn't grow wow. taller than what she already is. Or I was relatively mm -hmm. fairer skinned than my other sisters. So, oh yeah, she's very fair. She's yeah. gory. We'll find a guy for her easily. And, and then I would uh, hear things like, don't dream so big because uh, don't forget your ultimate place is going to be as a wife uh, for somebody. So lots of extended family and then also uh, things from my mom, like, for example, if I would get groped in the mm -hmm. mall in Pakistan, oh, it's because you're growing up too fast and, you know, uh, put your dupatta on properly. And I've described incidents in my yeah. book of being molested as a child and by a Quran teacher or by an uncle or by a cousin. And the blame was on me because I was the one growing up too fast. So I was always reminded of that gender piece, no matter, even in a 
like so-called progressive yeah. culture. How did that make you feel, Samra? As you were growing up, you were always told not to grow too fast. And it's pretty much saying it's your fault. You're going through all this because it's your yeah. fault. How did you feel about that? It was very, um, it was like, how is this my mm -hmm. fault? You know, uh, it was, again, that's so confusing and just felt so wrong to me on so many levels. For instance, you know, there was one time a family friend of ours, and this was actually the father of classmate of mine. So we were at a dinner party and I was playing with all the girls and we were playing hide and seek. So I went upstairs and hid in one of the bedrooms. And the next thing I know, the dad of this girl that I'm playing with comes in, grabs oh my, my breast and just starts groping me. And I got into like freeze mode. I was, I think, maybe 11 yeah. or something. And I was just like, how do I get out of here? It was as if like I'm having an out of body experience because I couldn't scream. I couldn't say anything. And I was like, we're at their place. Will anyone believe me? Everyone will think I'm the one doing something bad. Why did I come up here and hide? And then later on, when I told my mom about it, the solution to that was, oh, we just won't take you to their yeah. house anymore. So it was like, you know, my family would still go, still mingle with them. But I was the one now that was ostracized because somehow I was the one who was tempting yeah. this man to, to do that to me. So like these are just some of the examples that, you know, I think a lot of girls face because uh, the blame and the shame is always just placed with these kids and these these victims. Yeah, I actually remember reading that in your book, A Good Wife Escaping the Life I Never Chose. I, I remember reading that, especially that part when it first happened to you and how you felt. And I could feel all the emotions that you were going through. Your writing is incredible. And the way you described it, it was incredible. I felt like it was happening to me. And, and, and I felt so bad for you as well. Just the fact that there was no solution. It was just Again, blame placed on you indirectly or directly, but not really doing anything to safeguard you in that sense uh, or to hold him accountable for his actions. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just so sorry that you had to go through this as a child. And it's so saddening to hear that, you know, a child is considered to be tempting for a grown man. Yeah. It's just, I just hope that, mm -hmm. you know, things aren't yeah. like that today. But unfortunately, I think we've still got a long way to go before we're even yeah. close to where we need to be. Oh, big time. I think it happens to so many children. Pedophilia is still alive and rampant across communities and cultures. And I think in our community, what is the elevated or amplified problem is the shame and stigma that's associated with it and this whole idea of honor. And for some reason, that honor lies in the palm of a girl's hands, mm -hmm. uh, but she herself is not honored for who she is and her body and her choices. So we want to brush these things under the rug. We don't want to talk about them because they're taboo. But silence never favors the victim. It always favors the oppressor. A silence is the biggest ally of abuse. And that's why it keeps happening. It happens to young girls and kids all the time. I cannot think of even one friend that I have who hasn't been molested in her uh, childhood at some point, uh, groped or something. And I'm talking about like my Pakistani yeah. Muslim friends, because it's just, you know, sometimes it's an uncle, sometimes it's a cousin, sometimes it's some random stranger in the mall when you go and somebody would just kind of, you know, walk by you and grope you. It's something that's just so normalized because it just is the way it is. And we don't want to talk about it. Um, Summer, can I ask how your parents broached the topic of marriage to you then? And what was your reaction being so young, you know, only 15 when they started talking about it? So actually, you know, my marriage was also a product or I would say a result of all these things that were happening. So my mom was growing more and more paranoid as I was growing up. And I've described in my book how actually even one of my uncles, so my father's sister's husband, molested me when I was a teenager. My mom was just growing more and more paranoid that I'm 
growing up too fast? What if someone goes too far sometime? And and then also coupled with the fact that I was so ambitious and I was so outgoing and outspoken and I wanted to go to school and university. And then one day, you know, my mom came into my room uh, when I was 16 years old. I was doing my math homework. I was in grade 11 and she started telling me about this friend of hers. And I had met that friend a few times and she seemed like a nice lady. And uh, my mom is like, you know, this friend of mine, she has a brother who lives in Canada. They're really interested in you as his wife. I was literally shocked. I, I still remember that moment vividly because it was as if, you know, somebody had just thrown ice cold water into my face. And I said, Mom, what are you talking about? I'm 16. I want to go to university. I have all these big ambitions and goals. And my mom's like, well, let's be realistic. It's not like we can send you away by yourself somewhere. This way you will go to Canada. You can study there. His family is completely okay with you going to university. They're very supportive. And we won't be worried about you that you're all by yourself. So think of this like a ticket to education. So that's how the whole thing was sold to me, really, was this is my only way to be able to go to university and get a top class education. So my naive 15, 16 year old mind (laughs) accepted that. But at the same time, I was terrified. I had nightmares uh, for weeks uh, after I was engaged. I I had never spoken to this man. I had never met him. He was 11 years older than me. I was in high school and he was someone who could be a a friend of my father. I mean, you know, 11 years now doesn't make that much of a difference. I'm a grown woman. But at that time, when you're 16, it's like, it's a whole generation gap. I was absolutely terrified and just having panic attacks and nightmares and all kinds of anxiety. But then everybody would just tell me, no, 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 you can't say no. This is like a gift from Allah. And if you say no, you're going to go to hell. You you don't want to be ungrateful. They're the first girl among all of your cousins and friends to get married. That's such an accomplishment. I didn't want to be that ungrateful Mm -hmm. child who will go to hell, right? So there was a lot of pressure. And that's kind of what I talk about when I speak about child marriage is like sometimes, you know, people have this idea that child marriage is like a child being taken, kicking and screaming into a room and being chained or roped up or tied up and then forced to sign somewhere. Force is not a gun to your head or a knife to your throat. Force Mm -hmm. is coercion. Force is pressure. Force is that invisible, intangible kind of cycle that's created created around you that if you say no, you're damned. And if you say yes, you're damned. Like it's just that that whole sort of, you know, if a father says to you or if a parent says to you at at the age of 16, if you don't marry this person, you're going to be a failure and you're not going to be the same wonderful girl that we thought you were and you're going to disappoint us and we're going to be upset with you or whatnot. Like what's a 16 year old kid going to do? Right. Like the the thing we want as children most is the approval of our parents. You know, when that approval is at stake, a child will go to any lengths to appease their parents and to win their approval, especially, you know, when you're living in a society and a culture where it is so isolated, it's like kind of like an echo chamber because everyone's saying the same thing. That's kind of what happened to me. Eventually, I lost my voice. I stopped resisting. A few months later, just after my 17th birthday, I was sitting in a big, huge banquet hall decked up in red and gold beside this man who I'd never met before. He was an absolute stranger, 11 years older than me. And now he was my husband. You know, from what it sounds like it's not just coercion it's also a mixture of emotional and spiritual abuse it's what we recognize now that when religion is used as a way to coerce somebody to make them believe that they are doing something wrong if they're not obeyed going to hell if you don't do what we are asking of you All of that is part of spiritual abuse and it's classed as and recognized as such now. And also the emotional side of it as well, the emotional blackmail 
constantly that seems to be common when parents are trying to persuade their daughter and sons as well. I've come across stories before where, you know, even sons have been forced into marriage and they say, no, he wasn't forced. He verbally consented or she verbally consented. But what they don't talk about is all the pressure that those youngsters have had to get to that stage where they're verbally consenting and then the imam is um, agreeing it, you know, and they're performing the ceremony. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the imam will take the person aside, you know, the people who are getting married aside and will say, do you really consent? Did you have anything you want to say? And the girl is generally quiet and they take that silence as consent as well yeah there's a lot more to it it's not as simple as like you say you it's not the scenario of putting a gun to your head or you know taking you kicking and screaming but you know what Nafisa even if you are I mean how many the cars have you been to where the girl's crying her eyes out before she (laughs) says yes and that's just considered normal that's her being you know loving her family not wanting to leave them no one ever actually thinks it's because she really doesn't want to do this they just accept it as you know kind of rite of passage but you know if the imam is a good qualified one with qualifications needed to carry this out a kind of ethical imam who will think about all of this. My dad was licensed to carry out marriages and nikahs. And one of the things he always did, it wasn't just the ones, he would ask them several times over several days and he will meet with each of them several times. And he will always sniff out if there is something going on and then he will advise the parents. I'm not saying that it always worked. You know, sometimes the young adults, they're over the legal age of consent, but they're adamant they want to go ahead with it. But you know that there are underlying issues. And and my dad would say within six months, within a year, he could almost predict the time that it would take for that person to dissolve the marriage, you know, because he could see the similar patterns in this, especially when parents are coercing their children. You know, and that's kind of what I see about this is the whole, I guess, thought process behind mm-hmm. choice is that a lot of times, you know, we say, oh, it's their choice mm-hmm. to do it. Uh, for example, on my wedding day, my father came into my room mm-hmm. in the morning, said, you can say no, it's your choice. Was that really a choice when the wedding is fixed, all the guests have arrived? And if I say no now, I'm going to be the bad girl who's disappointing the entire mm-hmm. family, you know, people who've flown in from different parts of the world to attend my wedding. And then my mom comes into my room and like, no, 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 don't say that to her. And no, Samra, don't forget about it. Like, what do you mean? Like, you know, all the people are here and all. It's it's not really yeah. a choice. And that's the thing, you know, when when that choice is basically is almost like disguised manipulation. <laughs> it's really it's emotional abuse. And now the child is starting to feel like the responsibility for this decision is on her shoulders when it never should be. No child should even be put into that situation or even given that choice. So if choice is a result of these underlying beliefs and coercion and pressure and conditioning, then it's not really a choice. It's not an independent choice. Um, What was the legal age of consent in Abu Dhabi? Was it 18? Well, my marriage happened in Pakistan. Oh, it was in Pakistan. Yeah, it happened in Karachi. We all flew to Karachi for the wedding. Current legal age of consent is 16. Is that still so? I'm not sure what it was back in 1999. It's something that if it's 16, I'd be surprised. I, I would think it's less because I've heard stories of girls that are younger. I think uh, there might be a caveat to say if parents consent, then they can marry yeah. earlier. I'm not sure about that. It's certainly the case for UK, believe you or not. Young adults can get married at the age of 16 with parental consent, but the legal Same age thing is in 18. Canada. In fact, I did an interview yeah. yesterday on national TV yeah. here where uh, we were highlighting the prevalence and the legality of child marriage in Canada mm-hmm. because if the parent signs off, yeah. it's legal. Yeah. 
we most likely is the similar in Bangladesh, Pakistan, India. You but you know what, about, though? Let's yeah. face it, the, the illegal age might be 16, but kids a lot younger than 16 are getting married. And because they just do the Islamic ceremony without doing yeah. the legal one, right? That's mm-hmm. so true. Yeah, but in, in yeah. Pakistan, the legal one would be the Islamic one. Thing in England, yeah, but I think it's less than, uh, well, it might be 16 for an independent marriage, but oh, okay. I, I'm pretty sure it's it's like if it's below 16 and the parent signs yeah. off, uh, then it's legal because I've heard uh, stories of girls who are younger yeah. uh, getting married because their parents agreed to it. Coming back to your story. So you're now marrying this this man and it's your wedding day. What happens the first time you're alone with this stranger in terms of how were you feeling at that moment? Because you're just a child. I was petrified. I was I was a child and... Um, my marriage was done. Uh, my nikah was done. And then we, we didn't mm-hmm. start living together, though, because mm-hmm. he flew back to Canada and because he'd flown to Karachi for the wedding. And then after that, I lived a year in Karachi until all the paperwork and everything went through uh, with my parents. Then he uh, came back until after my paperwork was done for mm-hmm. the, you know, what you call Rukhsati, which is like the when I started to live with him. And that's when that's what the first time I was, I guess, alone with him in that sense. I remember my, my sister-in-law, who was actually the the sister who arranged all of this. She came into my room. She spread my lenga, which is like the bridal outfit, put me in the middle of the bed and spread that bridal outfit all around me and then put my dupatta over my face like a veil and gave me this um, lecture on sexual etiquettes. Uh, So never say no to your husband. Uh, If you say no, then the shaitan curses you or something like that. And then uh, no matter what he says, don't refuse. Uh, to do it, act shy, like uh, it's not nice for women to initiate sex yeah, uh, or want it even. <laughs> and then she gave me this five minute crash oh, course on birth control. Just avoid uh, these dates and and then everything will be OK. But don't do that, though, because, you know, if you actually prevent yourself from getting pregnant, it's a sin. Oh, uh, so that's kind of what was my sex ed. 20 minutes of, of a conversation from her before he came into the room. I remember just feeling absolutely terrified because virtual stranger who I was now his wife and I had just I had just finished grade 12. Like, you know, I went from playing with guys and and, uh, studying with them and everything. And then now suddenly to being the wife of a very fully grown man, it, it was really, really um, Samra, scary. were you guys communicating over the course of the year after between your nikah and your rukhsati? Were you- we were, yeah, we were through emails and um, once in a while he'd call me. But, you know, and at that time in my sort of um, 16 year old mind, I guess it was a coping mechanism for me as well that I'd romanticized this whole marriage Mm -hmm. idea. So yes, we were communicating and I thought, yes, he's now my husband and I have the year to adjust to it, I guess, and accept that as my reality. But I had zero sort of idea or anticipation or anything about the sexual element of of it. So that was very scary. Um, On the night that the marriage was consummated, was he kind? Was there any part about him and his manners or attitude towards you that set off alarm bells that this man can be intimidating or he's scary or, you know, there were any signs of what might come in the future? Actually, you know, on the contrary, he was really nice. He was like, we don't have to do anything you're not comfortable with. Let's just be friends first. He was very kind, very sweet, and I felt very much at ease. And the first few months of our of our marriage actually were like that. 
that week that we were in Abu Dhabi before we flew to Canada, his parents and everybody was there too. And he would make sure that while we're spending all this time with the family, him and I are spending time together. Then uh, once we came to Canada, he was very attentive and we would spend a lot of time. We would go out, we would have fun. He in fact once took me to the local high school because I hadn't even finished high school when I got married. He took me to the local high school to find out about pathways to getting my high school diploma and then it took me to the admissions office at the university once. So he was trying and I could tell that, you know, I really did believe that he was a nice person and I started feeling comfortable that maybe he's not so bad. And then things really turned when first thing that happened was I became pregnant right away because, again, that crash course in <laughs> birth control never helped. So um, I became pregnant right away. In fact, I remember when I went to my doctor and, and she told me that I was pregnant, she asked me the question, do you want to keep the pregnancy? And I and I just looked at her as if she's completely lost her marbles because I didn't even realize that was a choice. And I said, um, what do you mean? Do I want to keep the pregnancy? She's like, well, you have options. And I just said, no, 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 I don't think that's allowed. I don't think I'm allowed to discuss that. I was basically a teen mom. And during that time, he was attentive and nice to me. But what really changed everything was his parents moving uh, with us. And they immigrated from Kuwait, where he grew up, and they moved to Canada. And we were all living in the same house. So what he had been telling me all this time was that when his parents move, we're going to get a place of our own. So we won't be living together. But then as soon as they came, it was very clear to me that that was a lie mm -hmm. uh, and we would be living with them. And uh, his mother was actually very adamant about it and very proud of the fact that, oh, my son will never leave me. I was now suddenly kicked out of the master bedroom and into the other bedroom. I lived in the basement for most of my marriage when I had kids. That's when things really started shifting because he, he wouldn't spend time with me. We wouldn't go out. He started to say a lot of bad words. He started to treat me really badly. And I think uh, now that I look back in hindsight, it was way, uh, his way of gaining approval you know, of his parents. From what I know now and what I've realized in hindsight is that he was also neglected as a child and his brothers were given preferential treatment over him. So for him, getting the approval of his parents was really, really important. In fact, that's the reason he agreed to the marriage uh, was so that he could be the good son in his parents' eyes. And in his mind, treating your wife well was somehow disrespecting your parents because that's what his parents parents had conditioned him for. So he would treat me very badly and I hardly spend any time with me. And there were a lot of a lot of insults, a lot of humiliation, a lot of uh, bad words every single day. I just didn't know what I did wrong. Uh, I was always trying to figure out his mood swings and what to avoid doing in order to not make him angry. But no matter what I did, I was just never good enough. That's such an awful way to live. Imagine just constantly, you know, um, walking on eggshells, basically. That's exactly what it was, like walking on eggshells, living in fear. It's like every morning I would wake up and just wish for it to be a dull and uneventful day because that would be a good day. I often describe it as like living in a dark box with no light and just enough air that you can breathe and survive, but not enough to be able to actually breathe freely and thrive. So you're always living in this kind of state of constant suffocation that you're just trying to keep your head above water. And that's what my life was so like. So basically trying to survive. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, Samra, wanted to ask, 
ask them, how were your in-laws towards you when they initially moved in? And then how did that change or did it say the same? Oh, it, very controlling. His mother was the undisputed queen bee. She was always calling the shots and controlling things. And, and his dad was um, more like the orchestrator behind the scenes. So he would never be like, you know, she was the one who was the sort of the offender that would appear in front. But then he was always like supporting her at the back. It was like living in prison. And in fact, there was one time I remember I even said to his parents that I feel like I'm living in prison. And his father basically said to me that, well, then everybody should get a prison like that because you get such fancy food and you're eating and and you're like you're being fed and you're being clothed. And I remember saying to him that I felt like I wasn't being fed or clothed in my parents' home. <laughs> you know, it, like being being a prisoner is not about being fed or clothed. It's about not having freedom. I was not allowed to go anywhere outside of the house, not even in my own backyard, because one of the things with my husband was that he was extremely possessive and he used to actually say the words that you're my property and I don't want other men looking at you. So I wasn't even allowed to go into my backyard. I was forced to wear the hijab throughout the marriage. The only place I was allowed to go was the nearby, it was like a little child center where uh, where moms and their children would go uh, once or twice a week and it was like a, an hour long kind of a drop in class where you kids would do crafts and mingle with other children and on. That was the only place I had permission to go. It was like about a 15 minute walk and that sort of hour, hour and a half once or twice a week for me was my little taste of freedom and sometimes as I would walk there, there was like a little bridge you had to go over uh, and I would go under that bridge by the creek and that's where I would sometimes take my hijab off and just, just to feel the breeze in my hair uh, and those were like such precious moments for me. I never had a penny on me. In fact, there's this heartbreaking scene in my book where sometimes I would just squirrel away coins and things that I would see lying around the house and that would make me feel good that I actually have money. Mm -hmm. And one time I was coming back from that center, I was walking home and my daughter started to ask for a donut. So I went to the nearby coffee shop and I felt very proud of myself that I have $2. I was absolutely certain I had $2 in my purse. I was like, I have $2 and I can buy her a donut. And I felt like so accomplished in that moment. Mm -hmm. I ordered the donut and I put my hand in my purse and I couldn't find the coin. And no matter how much I turned my purse upside, upside down and tried to find it and I just couldn't find it. I was just feeling so mortified and humiliated and my hands were all clammy and my face is all red. And then I hear a very kind voice behind me. There was this man behind me who offered to pay for the donut. Uh, I remember in that instant feeling so afraid that who's this man? Why is he offering to pay for my coffee and donut? Is he going to assault me? Like Because that was my mindset. I was constantly living in fear. So I thought every Everybody is just out to get me and hurt me and harm me. And he paid for the donut and quietly left. And I went out of the coffee shop and sat on the bench on the street and just cried profusely for I don't know how long and feeling so powerless. And in that moment, just felt so pathetic that how am I going to do anything if I can't even buy a $2 donut for my daughter? heartbreaking. It's really heartbreaking. Samra, I wanted to just ask you, throughout this all, did you never speak to your own family about what you were going through and the fact that you were unhappy and you were in a prison-like state? I did. Uh, in the beginning, I didn't because, you know, the whole thing about I don't want to worry my parents and I don't want them to feel stressed out, etc. But then I started to tell them and my father and my mom would always just say, you know what, beta, just, just hold on for a little while, get your citizenship. 
Because one of the things that him and his family did was instill this fear in my head that if I said anything and if anyone found out or if I left, yeah. then I would be deported uh, because he sponsored me to Canada and I would lose my child because my child is a born Canadian wow. and I would not get my kid because I have no education and no money and no job. So I was so utterly and completely dependent and I had no way of knowing otherwise. I had zero knowledge about my rights in this country because I just wasn't allowed to talk to anyone. Anyone. I had no access to the internet. I had no access to the to a phone. I just didn't know any better. I didn't know otherwise. So I believed everything that they told me. And then also when I would sometimes tell his mom and she saw how the the way he treated me, but like she would always tell me that it's a woman's job to stay quiet and a good wife is submissive and tolerant and subservient and silent. In fact, she used to give me an example of her sister who was being physically abused throughout her marriage. Oh. And basically said, you know, look at her. That's what noble women are like. Like that woman was put on a pedestal in their entire family because she tolerated all this abuse of her all of her life for the honor of the family and for her children. That's the example that was given to me is that that's what good women are like. And that's why I named my book A Good mm -hmm. Wife, because that's what the definition of a good wife was. So when I finally started telling my parents, my parents were like, just wait for a little while and get your citizenship and then we'll bring you back to Abu Dhabi. So when I did get my citizenship, I did go back. And at that point, uh, I had decided I'm not going to come back. I hadn't told them that, but I went back as if I'm just going away, going for, you know, to visit my parents for the first time after five years. When I was there, then my my father basically told them that we're not sending Samra back. But then he became extremely apologetic. He started crying. He promised me that he will move out of his parents' house and we'll get a place of our own and it will be a fresh start. So that's the cycle of abuse because every time an abuser feels that the victim is going to leave, the abuser starts to be the best person, best husband there could possibly be. That's to coax the victim back into the cycle. And at that time, obviously, I didn't know that. So my parents also felt like, you know what, he's got a little bit of a kick in the butt. So, you know, maybe he's learned his lesson and you should go back. And Whoa. basically I was sent back. The abuse started all over again. And this time yes. even more so because I became pregnant a second time. Yeah. And then another time I tried to leave, but then my father died. And then my mom sent me back because she couldn't take care of me and, and my two children. So there were a number of attempts when I tried to leave, but I was either sent back or I voluntarily went back a couple of times times because I didn't have any clue about how to move on. Like I had no idea about my rights. I had no idea about how to get a job or financial support. Couldn't afford any lawyer, didn't have money because money is used as a tool to control a lot of victims. And also a lot of times because he would just become so apologetic and have all these promises and instill that hope in, in victims that maybe things will get better now. And things would get better for a while until things would get back to normal. And then the tension starts building up again and the abuse starts happening again. So it's like a cycle that keeps repeating itself. And over the years, it became more and more violent and more and more frequent. Towards the end of the marriage, the violence was so bad, uh, he was about to kill me a few times. Samra, I'm just going to take you back a little bit before we get come back to this point when things started to get super bad. The very first time he hit you, so after a cycle of emotional, psychological abuse, it started to escalate. 
What was the trigger? What was the first time that you remember him getting physical? The first time was when my daughter was a year and a half. So it was about two and a half years into our marriage or two years into our marriage. So he used to get upset about anything, you know, and that's typical of abusers because you try to figure out what they're going to get angry about. But it's not that they're actually angry about something. They're just angry internally as as they are. And then they'll try to what find whatever uh, as an excuse. So it could be the glass of water lying on the table will piss them off. I was serving him dinner and my daughter was in her high chair beside the dining table. Uh, I was sitting with him and um, and eating. He started just yelling at me for I don't know what reason. He just picked a reason and he started yelling as he always did. I lost my appetite. So I got up and he grabbed my wrist and he's like, where are you going, bitch? And I said, I, I just, I've, I don't want to eat anymore. I'm not hungry. Can you please leave my hand? And he wouldn't leave my hand. He started to twist my wrist and hold it really. And I started to pull it, but he wouldn't let go. And I said, can you please leave my hand? It's hurting me. And then he picked up his glass of ice cold water and just flung it towards me. And I got all this water on me, my face and drenched head to toe. And then he let go of my wrist. And as I was trying to get away from him, I slipped on the tile floor with the water on it because it was very slippery. And I just landed on my back and I hurt my back so bad. And my daughter is now screaming, mommy, mommy. And I somehow managed to get up and ran to the bathroom. And I remember on the way on the way to the bathroom, for some reason, grabbed the cordless phone. Uh, there were no cell phones, but the cordless home phone. And I went and locked myself in the bathroom. And now he's at the bathroom door knocking and being all loving. And I'm so sorry, please come out. I love you. Uh, I don't know what happened to me, blah, blah, blah. My daughter's crying and I have the phone in my hand. And I remember dialing 911. And then my finger is hovering over the talk button to dial it to actually so that the call would go through. But then all these thoughts came in my head again. Where am I going to go? I don't have have any family in Canada. They're going to deport me. They're going to take my child away. Uh, I don't have any money. I don't have any support system. I don't have an education. What's going to happen? All these things. So I just couldn't press the button. And I opened the door and he's by then all calmed down and all loving and all of that. And I just picked my daughter up and went into my bedroom and cried myself to sleep. Do you feel controlled, belittled or isolated by a partner or family member? This is domestic abuse and it is never your fault. Help is always available and you are not alone. You do not deserve abuse. You deserve support. If you are experiencing domestic abuse, ask for Annie in pharmacies, showing the Ask for Annie logo to get immediate help to call the police or support services. For free helpline support and advice, visit gov.uk forward slash domestic hyphen abuse. When you've described the first time that he was violent towards you and then how you felt afterwards, etc. I just wanted to ask, when the violence started to escalate, did anybody notice the bruises or just any, you know, your neighbours, your friends? I know you said you didn't have any friends yourself because they didn't allow it. But, you know, any visitors they had, anybody else around you, you know, was there anybody who could have potentially helped but didn't? Absolutely. I think people every around me all knew. Uh, his family, friends, you know, we would go for dinner parties 
parties and stuff, uh, they saw the signs. Uh, my fellow students noticed because I used to hide my bruises under my hijab or uh, get very jittery when class ran over or something like that. My One of my neighbors, actually, uh, one time when we had briefly moved out of his parents' house to live in an apartment, one of my neighbors, I used to tutor her kids and she noticed and she actually talked to me about it too. But in fact, there was this, this heartbreaking time when um, it was my sister's wedding in Pakistan and we had all gone to Pakistan for the wedding, me and my husband and the kids. There was one time when, and, and people there, my own family uh, noticed, he would sometimes yell and whatnot, but he would he would always portray himself to be such a loving, caring husband and the control was always like kind of simmering beneath the surface, disguised in a lot of, a lot of love. That one time, there was a big dinner party in my chacha's house, in my uncle's house. I was setting food on the dining table and I had cooked as well. And a lot of people, all my cousins and uncles and aunts and everybody was there. My husband was constantly watching me and he, that's what he used to do. He was always, his eyes were always on me. He was always watching what I'm doing. So I was, I had this, always this eerie feeling of like, you know, that there are eyes on me. And I was getting out of the dining room. One of my uncles was coming into the dining room. So I just said, uncle, please wait, wait, wait. I'm just going to turn around and wear my slippers and go because we were all in a rush and, you know, dinner was about to set and whatnot. So later on, I could see my husband's mood shift and he was just really angry about something and, and I couldn't understand what. And eventually he signaled to me to come upstairs to the bedroom. He slapped me a few times, threw me to the ground and kicked me in my stomach uh, so hard that I doubled over in pain. Basically, he was angry and he said, you were showing your ass to your uncle. Oh on purpose. And you're such a shameless, used a very bad word, which I'm not going to say, being in so much pain. And then he left. And then I got up and went to the bathroom and I splashed some water on my face, fixed my makeup with a lot of extra foundation, went down and mingled with everybody because I didn't want to spoil my sister's wedding and create a scene at the wedding. Later on, a couple of days later at another dinner party in our family, my uncle basically announced in front of the entire family that Samra is the luckiest girl in this family because she has such a loving husband because that is the image that he portrayed in front of everyone else. He was the perfect son-in-law doing all the chores in the wedding, being so loving to me in front of other people. Whereas behind closed doors, this is what was happening. My uncle said these words as I'm still aching in my ribs because of his kicks. That is so... He was a complete sociopath. But this is what abusers do. Abusers actually present such a perfect image. It's, It's tempting to think that abusers are all sociopaths and psychopaths but actually a lot of abusers are very flawed human beings. There is some good in them and that's why victims stay because they see that hope and they see those glimmers of hope. But there are human beings that are raised with a lot of abuse sometimes themselves or that have extremely outdated and patriarchal gender norms in their head because that's how women should behave. A lot of toxic masculinity because they feel emasculated when uh, a woman is happy or does well. You mentioned in one of your points that you wanted to break the cycle of generational abuse. And when you said your father was abusive, did you mean your father in no or your own father? No, my dad. Your own father. My own father. Okay, could you yeah. just uh, clarify a little bit about that, expand on it in terms of he was abusive to your mom? Yes, he was abusive to my mom, uh, extremely abusive. Wow. In fact, when I, uh, there were many times when I saw him hit my mom. Uh, there was one time I remember when I was, I think, um, 12 or 13, and he threw all my, threw my mom's clothes out of the house, kicked her out, and she sat on the porch for hours. And I waited until he fell asleep and then brought my mom back in through the back door. Uh, and she was sitting out on the street 
in the middle of the night. He used to have all these kinds of tantrums and anger issues. And it was a very horrible childhood. Like I, I used to take my uh, sisters in and hide in a bedroom and put uh, my hands over their ears so they couldn't hear my parents fighting. Oh. So I, I got into that protective mode because I was the eldest. So do you think when this was happening to you in another country and away from your parents, did you some part of you feel like this is the norm and this is what's to be expected? This is what oh, my absolutely. mom went through. So you know, this is what I have to do. Absolutely. Yes. Um, in fact, my mom would say that to me that, you know, this is what all men do. You know, you saw your dad do the same. At least he's not cheating on you because my dad also cheated on my mom. So, you know, I was given that example that, you know, at least he's not cheating on you. At least he's not breaking your bones or that was the norm. And that's exactly what I saw so crystal clear when I went to counseling, because I knew deep down, uh, I could see very clearly by then that a lot of the abuse that I had suffered and tolerated was because that's what I saw in my childhood. There were there were so many similarities between my ex-husband and my dad. The only difference, I guess, where my ex-husband was way worse was that my ex-husband was extremely possessive. My mom always worked and my dad wasn't all about like, I don't want other men looking at my wife. My ex-husband was, that was a big one for him that he just was, he didn't want me to work or go out or anything because he literally said I'm his property. Other than that, like they were both classic abusers. That's the cycle that I wanted to break for my daughters. And, and the other piece is that also uh, my ex-husband and his family had already started saying things like, well, you no need to save for the girls' education. They're girls. They're going to get married at 17 or 18 anyway. And that really uh, scared me a lot. You were worried about your daughters being subjected to the same as well. Absolutely. And I'm just going to cover the, the abuse part before we move on, um, only because we have so many listeners as well who are going through the same thing and they probably would identify with your story quite a lot and hopefully it will give them them that courage to just do something about this and come out of the cycle. We're part of a, a mother's community, a Muslim mama's community, and we have a lot of anonymous posts regarding the abuse they receive. And one particular story, you know, the sexual violence was just horrendous, which then led to a, a similar incident to yours where you said your life was under threat before she actually made the move to leave that abusive situation. So were you subjected to anything similar where the violence had moved from just, you know, the environment to the bedroom? And, and then, you know, escalating in ways that you never imagined. Yeah, absolutely. When my dad died, um, my ex-husband at that time was in Canada when my father died and I was in Pakistan. He flew to Pakistan the day after my father passed away. The first thing he wanted and he made me do was force me to have sex with him because his thing was that you've been away from me for two months and this is my right and you can't refuse. And here I was uh, having seen my dad's dead body 24 hours ago in very distraught emotional state. There was nothing about me or to comfort me or help me grieve. It was all about his needs. And I remember when he was doing that and I was literally just lying underneath him, eyes closed, hoping that it would be over soon, and then got up and went into the bathroom and turned the shower on full blast. And that's where I started just bawling my eyes out and crying my heart out. Like I just felt so alone and used in that moment. And there was hardly ever any kind of sexual intimacy in my marriage because like we slept in separate bedrooms and, and a lot of times he didn't want to be near me and I didn't want to be near him, but he would say things like, you're ugly, you're not worth it, whatnot. And eventually 
eventually I found out that he was involved elsewhere as well. But at that time, I didn't know that. As the physical violence escalated uh, towards the end of the marriage, in fact, that was like the day that I decided that I'm going to leave, was one time when he, again, arguing with something uh, about money with me, and he threw my laptop to the ground. And I was studying at that time. I was had my exams going on, and he threw my laptop to the ground, and he broke it, and he basically took my notes, and I and had a pile of notes in, in front of me, and he threw them around and scattered them, and I they just got all misplaced and the order got all messed up. And he went to the basement and that's where his computer and everything was and his little office was set up. So I was picking up papers from the floor and I just got so like, I was just like, I'm done with this. Like it had been now what, 11 or 12 years. And I was just like, I can't do this. And I, and I went downstairs and I said, why do you keep doing this? What is wrong with you? Why did you mess up my papers? And why did you break my laptop? And I just started to confront him. And he, I think he saw that defiance in my eyes and in my voice that he got up and he pushed me to his chair. I was sitting on the chair and he put his hands on my throat and he started squeezing. I couldn't breathe and I was telling him I can't breathe, but he just wouldn't let go. I thought I was going to die. In that moment, I thought, that's it, I'm dead. And somehow I found, I guess, the wherewithal to kick him. And I kicked him really hard that he fell off of me uh, to the floor. I got up and I started running towards the stairs, but then he grabbed me again and he started to squeeze my ribcage and I started to scream at the top of my lungs, hoping that the neighbors or something would hear. And then I, again, somehow managed to get him off of me, ran up the stairs, grabbed my keys and went out and started my car and just squealed away. Drove like a maniac around the streets, uh, hoping that he's not following me. And when I was certain that he's not following me, just parked somewhere in a secluded parking lot. The kids were at school. It was daytime. And I just started to cry. I broke down for a few minutes and then called Assaulted Women's Helpline, which is like a help line here in Canada and got some resources together, decided at that point I was going to leave. And by that time, I knew his cycle. So I knew by the time I'm, I'm going to go home, he's going to be all calm and stuff, um, which is what happened. I went home. He was all calm, pretending like nothing ever happened. Do you feel controlled, belittled or isolated by a partner or family member? This is domestic abuse and it is never your fault. Help is always available and you are not alone. You do not deserve abuse. You deserve support. If you are experiencing domestic abuse, ask for Annie in pharmacies, showing the Ask for Annie logo to get immediate help to call the police or support services. For free helpline support and advice, visit gov.uk forward slash domestic dash abuse. It was my exams during those days. And then as soon as my exams were done, that's when I, I told him it's over. How did he react to that when you told him? Oh, he was, uh, he thought I was just messing around. He was, I tried to leave so many wow. times that, you know, he thought I was just going to get over it one day. And um, eventually what happened was that one day he was uh, coming towards me to hit me during one of the fights. And I picked up my phone and I said, if you lay a finger on me, I'm going to call 911. And so he said, the lock, the lock, the lock. At that mm -hmm. time, that's what I used eventually that, okay, now the lock is done. So he went to some mosque and got a fatwa that, uh, no, that the lock is not done because no matter how many times you say in one go, it's it still counts as one. Yeah. That I went to a different mosque and got another fatwa that it's done. So yeah. I just said, you know what, I don't want to be in a doubtful marriage. And I kind of used that point as my leverage to to get out and to shut him up that no, it's over. And that's when he started to say, you know, let's let's keep it amicable. Let's sell the house. And then he sold the house from under me and under false pretenses that he will help me sign, uh, co-sign a lease for a condo where I can live with the girls and then refuse to sign and basically says LMAO, um, talk to my lawyer now. Oh, 
And then eventually I got a place on, at U of T. And that's when I reported him because that was the last straw for me that this man was about to put his own children out on the streets because of his vindictiveness. Up until then, I had never reported him. I'd always tried to protect him and I tried to keep things amicable. But at that time, I just was like, this is it. I'm done. And I went and reported him and he was arrested uh, on four counts of assault and eventually uh, convicted as well. Oh, good. I was going to ask you, actually, that was going to be my next question. Did you report him and did you charge him? And uh, so when he when he was convicted, how many years did he get? He didn't get any jail time. The laws on domestic yeah. violence are not very, yeah, it's, it's very lax, especially if it's a first offense. And I mean, even though it's not a first offense, but in the eyes of the law, it is because that's the first time it's been reported. Yeah, he got a bit of, he got a slap on the wrist and a peace bond and uh, a restraining order uh, that he's supposed to stay away from me and whatnot. But I mean, my, my goal with reporting was not about sending him to jail. It was more about doing the right thing. And I wanted to do my part. And when I reported him, I was I already separated. So the police said to me, you know, we don't see bruises on you. And this is all historical. So I don't we don't know whether we're going to be able to lay charges. And I said, I don't I don't care about that. I just needed to do my part. And I didn't want to stay silent about this anymore. They got my medical records and they got a statement from my counselor. And that's because they had the corroborating of evidence. And that's when they were able to able to charge him. Um, can I ask him, um, do your daughters have any relationship with him? No, today? they don't. They in fact, uh, I used to encourage and push my kids to see him because in my head, you know, and that this is our conditioning that, oh, he's the dad and they deserve to have a relationship with him, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, my older daughter, who's literally a force, <laughs> she um, one day when she was, I think, 14 or 15, uh, said to me, mom, tell me something. If he was just a random guy, he was not our dad, just somebody that an acquaintance or someone we just, you know, ran across with the kinds of views he has, the misogyny, the patriarchy, the sexism, the racism, the homophobia, like the kinds of person he is. Would you really want someone like that in our life as a role model? And I said, no. And they're like, so then he doesn't get a free pass just because he's our dad. He's not good for us. So stop pushing she's us. How amazing. wise is she? She takes after her mom. She is <laughs> incredible. Like she gives me tough love when I need it. And, you know, and she's the per she's the one who actually encouraged me to leave. Like she was eight years old one time and she came to me and said, mom, if you're staying because of us, then please don't because we're not going to be happy unless you're happy. And even after I left and, you know, whenever I had those weak moments of like, how am I going to make it? Like she would just hold my hand and say, you're not alone. We're going to make it. You know, we're going to get through this together. So she is my rock in so many ways. And both of them actually are like, you know, and we're my youngest daughter, actually, she's named us the power girls. Oh. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and she will join you soon, no doubt. <laughs> she, three of you. Oh, she be. already yeah. is. Like she's <laughs> almost 15 now. And she's now like, she says all these wise things that come out of her mouth. Sometimes I'm like, oh my God, what are you like 15 going on 50 or something? <laughs> Samra, it's so incredible, but so sad at the same time that you survived, you know, 10, 11 years of this abuse. Um, what kind of coping strategies did you implement to get through the trauma of your everyday life? My coping strategies were mainly to spend a lot of time with my daughter, because as long as I was taking care of her, I was doing my womanly duties. <laughs> you know, my daughter before the age of three knew how to read and knew all her <laughs> shapes and colors and all because I would just spend a lot of time with her. So I would get a lot of joy in that. The other thing is, because I was very adamant about my education, and I wasn't now allowed to go to a regular high school, I discovered the Independent Learning Center, which is a place where you can order all your courses, your high school courses, 
self-study basically and then you basically just go write an exam at the end of it at the end of the course to pass i was allowed i was given permission to do my courses through ilc because a they didn't cost any money and b uh, i wasn't going out of the house like shameless women do i remember actually the first time i called ilc and i said to the the person at the other end of the line that i wanted to order some courses he asked me how old are you and i said i'm 18 and then he's like so why aren't you in regular school and i was like, it's kind of complicated. And then he goes, well, most of the kids your age who are doing their courses through ILC and not in regular school are children who are in prison for whatever petty crime or child, you know, reasons. And and that's why they do their courses through us. And I remember saying to him, yeah, it's the same situation here and eventually ordered my courses. So I would do all my chores during the day and fulfill my wifely and motherly and daughter-in-law duties. And then at the end of the day, I would go into my room and I would study and a lot of times with my daughter in my lap. And those few hours at the end of the night and, and my my husband and I at this point were not sleeping together because he didn't want to be disturbed by the baby. And I kind of used that as, as an excuse to be away from him as much as possible. And I, I didn't want you. to sleep with him. I had my own separate room and I would have my daughter in my lap or like have put her to sleep and that's where I would study. And that's how I did my high school. I finished my high school over five years all on my own. And that was my little light at the end of my dark tunnel of a day. That's amazing. And it's really inspiring as well that you managed, you know, to do all that in such circumstances. Can I ask, you know, what was kind of like the moment of clarity when you realized that enough was enough? You know, was it like a significant event or was it just everything building up that you know, took you to that moment? There were, it was a lot of things building up. I think um, the first time around was just because I was so unhappy when I went to see my parents for the first time and told them everything that was happening. And after that, I was sent back. And then again, I was sent back. After my father died, it was sort of that turning point for me that no matter what I do now, it has to be on my own. I don't have a crutch. I don't have anyone to rely mm. on. So it forced me to take charge of things. And by then I had finished my high school courses and I'd applied to university. I got in, but then I was told there's no useless money to waste on your silly little hobbies. And I knew then if I wanted to go to university, I'd have to pay my own way because I couldn't get student funding from the government because they look at household income and his income was above the threshold. So if I was to go to university, it would have to be on my own. I'd have to pay for it myself. But I didn't have any permission to go out of the house and get a job that was not allowed. So I realized I needed to first make money. But how do I make money from home? So I started to like research all kinds of things, you know, like how to make money from home. And I came across affiliate marketing schemes to like stuffing envelopes and all kinds of stuff. The idea came to me when I was one day doing uh, going grocery shopping with my mother-in-law. You know, when you come out of a grocery store and after you pay your stuff, there's usually these big community boards where people are have put random ads like someone selling their couch or their TV and whatnot. So yeah. I was reading some of these ads because uh, my mom, mother-in-law loved collecting junk. So she was always checking out ads of what people are selling. And I came across this ad that was uh, somebody was advertising their babysitting services. And I was like, what? Like people can actually like, earn money money for babysitting other people's kids at home. I looked into it and apparently like, you know, I could do it. So at that time, Kijiji was just starting 
And I thought that this could be a good way to advertise. And I started to put ads out and people would come. And because I was fluent in English, I was able to get some good conversations going with parents. And uh, within a few months, I had established a home daycare. And the way I made it happen was I got my mother-in-law involved in it too, that, you know what, if if you get involved in it and, you know, we could do this together and then uh, you could take care of a couple kids, I can take care of a few. And that way, the money that comes from those kids will be yours. I knew that money was a way to win them over because they were always like quite greedy for money. And my mother-in-law had never earned anything uh, on her own. So for her, it was a big opportunity. So that's how we started it. And um, and eventually I realized that, you know, if I wanted to get any kind of thing done, I need to get her on board. So I started to use that trick and I started to sort of almost be as manipulative as I possibly could. And, you know, that's how I got my driver's license. I said to her, you know, I mean, if if we uh, both learn how to drive and we can both get our licenses together. So I got a driving instructor. I paid for her lessons as well as mine. And eventually I got my license and she couldn't pass the driving test. And then I stopped paying for lessons. Similarly, like I told her, you know, I mean, you like you love talking to your friends all day on the phone. And sometimes the da- parents of the daycare kids call and they can't reach me. So if I have a cell phone, then they can call my number and then you don't have to worry about keeping the phone free. So that's how I got my Perfect. cell phone. And then I said, you know, I need to take the kids out to the park and, you know, groceries. And imagine, you know, if I had my car, then we could go because she was a shopaholic. So that, you know, we could go shopping all the time and we don't have to rely on the on the men in the household to take us to the mall and stuff. And then she got on board with that. And that's how I got my car. So I just found out these ways of making these little wins happen, mm-hmm. uh, little steps to independence. And uh, and that's eventually how I saved money for my university. So most of the money that I earned would be taken away from me because my husband had every every eye on every penny that I earned. But I would still secretly have a stash away a little bit, like 100 bucks, 200 bucks every month. And it took me about three years to save the 2,500 or so dollars that I needed to pay for my first year tuition fee as a part-time you student. You are amazing. Let me just tell you, that's just such an amazing story to be that patient and to, you know, constantly stay focused on what you wanted to do, despite all the stuff that was going on in the background. It takes some kind of stamina, doesn't it, Taz? I mean, I'm amazed. Absolutely. I mean, I can barely get through of my, you know, day to day tasks. <laughs> and I just can't imagine how you, yeah. and you kept that hope. That's the, that's the key, though. It, was about hope. You know, even in those early days of my marriage, when there was no hope of ever being able to go to school, like I hadn't even discovered ILC at that time. I thought my education was completely over. My mother-in-law had told me that you should be grateful to us that we got you to the real purpose of being a woman sooner rather than later. And you didn't have to go through all of that education crap. Mm -hmm. I thought it's done. I'm never going to go to school again. Even then, I would stand in front of a mirror with a piece of paper rolled up in my hand as if it was a degree. And I would practice the graduation speech that I would one day deliver. Visualization. (laughs) Yeah, it was. And that's how I kept my hope alive. And I think that's the vision that I always had, which just kept me going, uh, you know, one year after the next and one step after the next. And uh, eventually, like 10 years later, when I did get to start university, I paid my own way. And uh, and that's when my life really started to change. Um. 
Could you tell us about the day you left? Well, when I started university, I was still married. I was given permission to take one course. So I took the night course for Economics 100 and uh, Monday night, seven to nine. And it was just a magical moment when I was first staying in my very first class. I got there 15 minutes early, big goofy smile, tears streaming down my face and was just like, oh my God, I'm actually in university. This is happening. And I had been married by then for 10 years. I was 26, two kids by then. And I was uh, given very strict instructions. Don't talk to anyone in class. Don't make any friends. Don't raise your hand. In other words, be invisible. And in the beginning, I was actually paranoid that my husband has spies on campus who are watching me and are going to report back to him. So I would be on my very best behavior. I wouldn't engage with anyone. And I had a lot of like self-confidence issues because of all the ongoing abuse for so long. And so I wouldn't want to talk to anyone because I thought sooner or later, they're going to find out how much of a horrible person I am and they're not going to want to be my friend. So I'd rather not even engage. So I would just go and put my head down and study and, and then come back. And then uh, a few weeks into it, we had our first test, our first midterm. I got 100 on that test and my professor started to announce my name in front of the entire class. And then he, you know, said, Samra, whoever Samra is to stand up and everyone's like looking around, who's this girl? <laughs> and I just wanted to like die or like crawl into some kind of corner and, and the earth swallow me or something. Uh, but eventually I forced myself to stand up and everybody noticed. And after that, people are like, hey, wow, how did you solve that question? You got the bonus question right too. You know, do you want to hang out together tomorrow? Let's go to Starbucks and study. Tomorrow's Tuesday. You know, it's half price chicken wings at the student pub. Let's hang out. And, and I was just amazed. I was like, wow, people are actually like treating me with kindness and respect. And it was the first time I was being treated with admiration for the very things that I was always ridiculed for, which was my intelligence and my ambitions and my goals and my individuality. And initially I would not engage, but then slowly but surely the shell started to crack open and I started to hang out with people and gain confidence and raise my hand in class and engage with people. And I was loving it. And then I would go home and I would be treated like, the scum stuck at the bottom of someone's shoe. And I was like, oh, who am I? Like, am I this rock star that everybody at school seems to think I am? Or am I this worthless creature that doesn't deserve any kind of love or respect. So one day I was walking on campus with these thoughts in my head and I came across a sign uh, which had a bunch of questions on it. Do you feel intimidated? Like you've lost your voice, like you can't go on, like you're living in fear all the time. And it was as if that sign was just calling out to me and it was placed outside the health and counseling center. And I went in and I made an appointment. A few days later, I was sitting across from my counselor and it was like the floodgates opened. And this was my first chance to talk to someone somebody outside of my family and outside of his family, because everybody up until then had told me that it's somehow my fault and I need to do better and I need to be better and etc. And it's normal. So now I had this chance to talk to a professional and I started to just kind of blurt everything out. What is wrong with me? Like, why do I keep messing up? Maybe if I cook better food or wash better clothes or keep the baby quieter at night or not talk too much or not have opinions or not express opinions. But if it is normal to, to experience this, then why doesn't it feel normal? Why is there this tiny voice in my head that keeps saying this isn't okay? And how can I do better? What is that secret to being a good, good wife that keeps eluding me? Uh, my counselor heard me go on for an hour and she, at the end of it, said the sentence that I believe changed my life. She said, Samra, it's not your fault. No matter what you do, 
you do not deserve to be abused. No one does. And this was the first time I heard the word abuse. And then she directed me towards resources and websites and books, etc. And I started reading up about abuse and how it works and the power wheel and the control dynamic and the cycle of abuse and all of that. And it was as if like my life was laid out in front of me in black and white. And I was like, this is exactly what's happening to me. How do these people know this? This is scary. And I learned that, you know, this isn't just happening to me. This happens to a lot of people. And over the next few months, I would skip my classes sometimes to go for counseling because I didn't want them to realize that I'm staying on campus later than I'm supposed to because he knew my entire schedule by heart. And I started to learn about abuse. I started to learn about the generational cycle to abuse that my children, my girls are watching this and normalizing this. And I learned, you know, my father was abusive. So I could see the parallels between him and my husband and how I'm accepting so much or I accepted so much from abuse from my husband because that's what I'd seen my father do when I was growing up. And I didn't want that to happen to my girls. That's ultimately what was the absolute last turning point for me was that I'm going to break the cycle for my daughters. By that time, I'd also started to push back at home and I'd started to challenge that behavior. And I had started to display a lot of signs of independence and rebellion, I guess, which made the abuse even worse because an abuser, when they feel that they're losing control, they exert more power. So uh, he started to get more and more violent. He threatened to kill me a few times. And one time actually came close to killing me. And that's when I decided that I have to leave. And my big master plan of like, once I get my degree and get a job and then I'll leave was like thrown out the window. <laughs> and I was like, this is it, you know, sink or swim, baby. I got to get out of here. And that's when I left. I was in my second year of undergrad. I was 28 at the time. And my daughters were 10 and five. And I left. I had zero plan. Uh, I just had a little bit of hope that maybe things will turn out okay. And it was very difficult. In fact, a lot of backlash from the family, from his family. They spread a lot of rumors about me that she was sleeping around and she ran away with someone. And my own family didn't want to, my, my mom didn't want to tell the extended family back in Pakistan that I was divorced uh, or getting separated. I faced a lot of harassment from married Pakistani men here in Toronto who thought now I was fair game and used property and damaged goods. So they could just do whatever to me and I would spread my legs for them. Also, uh, a ton of uh, financial difficulties because like I said, I was a student. I had no job. And in the beginning, my husband uh, or my ex-husband now, he had placed every possible roadblock in my way. He refused to pay me any kind of support until I took him to court, which I didn't even have money for, sell some of my jewelry and furniture to pay for a lawyer. Uh, he sold the house from under me. So I was almost homeless at one point. I, luckily, I got a, an apartment on st student housing on campus and I had packed all my stuff in garbage bags. And it took me a few days to and a few trips every day to move all my stuff. And that's where I lived with my daughters for the next two or three years and uh, on campus, picked up four or five on-campus jobs, working night shifts at the student center, became a teaching assistant and also started selling homemade biryani <laughs> to students on campus <laughs> because everybody was starved for home-cooked food and that's what paid my grocery bills. That's really, you know, every day I felt like giving up. Every day it was like, I can't do it. Maybe I should just give up. Everyone's right. What am I thinking? But then I would look at my girls and I would tell myself to keep going for them one step, one day at a time. You're just amazing. I'm going to keep saying that every time you talk, I will keep repeating it. <laughs> um, so Samra, I mean, you obviously went through so much abuse, including spiritual abuse, you know, from your parents and your in-laws. Um, well, how did that impact your own relationship with your faith? Um, it's It's been, to be honest, it's been 
been a bit of a an up and down kind of a journey. There was a time in the beginning after I got separated and because religion had been used as such a big tool uh, to justify all the abuse that I was inflicted with. My mother-in-law basically said to me that what my husband is doing is nothing. There's nothing wrong with it because in the Quran, it says that a man can hit his wife. A lot of it was justified in the name of religion, even not just from his parents, but like you said, as my from my parents as well. So there was a time when I completely turned away and I said, no, I, I reject this. I don't want to be part of this faith or community that tells me that this is what God wants me to suffer from. And also, you know, my mom's way of religion or faith is so rooted in fear. So she would say things like, so, you know, like I got a lot of success when I left and I became the top student at University of Toronto and won a lot of awards and scholarships and successful career and all of that more than I ever could have imagined. And my mom would say things like, this is all now a test from God. And if you're not going to be on the right path, then uh, all this will be taken away from you and you'll die a slow, painful death. And so like it was all based in fear. And, and I rejected that fear completely, you know, for a, for a while turned away. But I always felt something's missing. I always knew that there is a higher power, a higher force of energy and love that surrounds and connects all of us. And that's what I want to believe in. So over the years, my relationship with faith has evolved a lot. Now I have a very strong faith, do believe that whatever we really, truly want, we really, truly value, God helps us with it. It's rooted in love. It's not rooted in fear. I do pray and I meditate and I do my own things to worship. And in fact, everything else, everything that I do today in terms of my social work, the causes that I advocate for, it all comes from that place of higher purpose. Because when I look back at my life and where I am today is nothing short of a miracle. Uh, You know, I'm a childhood sexual abuse survivor. I'm a child marriage survivor. I'm a domestic abuse survivor. And I'm not lying under a bridge uh, overdosed in a shelter or homeless or out on the streets, which I may very well have been. And I've seen people in atrocious circumstances because they are not able to recover or heal from their trauma. The fact that I'm here and doing the work that I am, like when I graduated from university and I was named the top student and got all that success and recognition, it was a big question in my mind that why did all that happen to me? Why did I go through all of that abuse and come out with more success than I ever could have dreamed of? And I just felt there was more to it than than just me. It wasn't just, yes, I, I was hardworking. Yes, I was intelligent, but there was a purpose behind it. And when I started sharing my story, saw the impact that it made in people's lives, that's when I found that purpose. And today, every day I wake up knowing that that's the purpose that God has put me in this world for. And that's why I went, had the experiences that I did. That doesn't make what happened okay, but this is what I can do with it. And whatever I do today is from that place of purpose, which is rooted in love, which is rooted in my faith. That's amazing. It's a beautiful way to express your faith and the way you've connected it to your purpose and higher purpose. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that kind of brings us to our final question. What advice do you have for others battling pressure and forced marriages, you know, men and women? And do you have anything we can share to parents with how to equip their children better to recognize abusive behavior in relationships? The first advice I would say is that do not pressure children or anyone else. (laughs) This is marriage is the most important legal contract of our life. Marriage is probably the most important relationship of our life. Completely sets the course of our lives. That is a decision that is very personal and it should be made at a very personal level. A lot of parents, especially in our cultures, when they're trying to find suitors for their children, what do we look at is like the resume, how much that person earns, how many degrees do they have, etc. We don't look at personality traits and character values. You know, in my case, they wanted tall and fair, Bahu, like a Lumbian Gori mm-hmm. Lurki, you know, like yeah. a, a tall and fair daughter-in-law. So I fit those criteria. And the day of the wedding, when I was standing beside him, everybody was like, 
like, yeah, we found the perfect match. They look so great in pictures together. Like that should never be the criteria for marriage. Money comes and goes, job comes and goes, and career success comes and goes. What really stays is how compatible you are in terms of values and in terms of character traits. That should be at the forefront. And to be honest, every person is so unique and so different that it should be their, I believe it should be their personal choice. I would never, ever tell my children who and when and if to marry. It's completely their choice and they can do it whenever they want. And if they don't want to get married, that's their prerogative as well. Secondly, to people who are being pressured, I would say, I know it's hard to say no. And I know it's hard to walk away. I know what it's like to have so much parental pressure around you and that need for approval and all of that. If you're in it, then know that you have the strength to walk away. You have it in you. A lot of times we look for strength outside of us, but actually that strength lies within us. And when we dig deep and we use that strength, that's when things will start shifting. It happens in little steps. It's not like one day you'll wake up and decide that everything is going to be different and make that journey. While that we've been speaking, that was a lot of tiny steps for me. The first act of courage for me was when I ordered my first course through Independent Learning Center. If I hadn't done that, I wouldn't be here today. Any journey, no matter how long it is, it starts with one simple step. And every time you act from a place of courage, which doesn't mean you're not afraid because courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is knowing I'm afraid. Yes, I'm afraid. And being afraid is very normal. It's part of the human emotion spectrum. I don't agree with the word fearless because there's no such thing. You know, we all have fear in us of certain things and fear is can be healthy. It actually helps us from doing things that harm us. But at the same time, fear can be, uh, you know, we can choose how to use our fear, whether we're using it as a catalyst to move forward or we're using it as a stumbling block to keep us keep us back. So every time we act from that place of courage, we build our courage muscle and it becomes easier and easier to take more courageous steps. Just, you know, keep trying. And that's the difference between success and failure, because every person who is successful fails multiple times. Like I said, I, I tried to leave my marriage multiple times and I was either sent back or I went back, but I kept trying. And I'm so grateful to myself that I tried that sixth time that I was finally able to leave and then stay away. And I would uh, tell people around, you know, whenever a person speaks up, when a victim speaks up, when a survivor walks away, support them, champion them and congratulate them. Don't ridicule them. Don't shame them. Don't blame them that why did you stay so long or why did you walk away? Instead, give them non-judgmental and ultimate support. The shame and the stigma of abuse only belongs with abusers, not with victims. And we need to break the silence. And, and I would really encourage if men are listening that men need to be allies, men need to be standing shoulder to shoulder with women in this fight, because gender equality is not about men versus women. It's about all of us versus the problem, because it affects all of us on so many levels. And uh, there is no honor in silence. Thanks so much, uh, Samra, for your insight and your words of wisdom. It's just so valuable, the information you've given and the words you've just stated, because um, all the listeners who are going through similar, they'll be able to connect to it. They'll be able to reflect on your words and they hopefully will be able to translate that into some productive action. You know, I just pray the listeners listening who need the strength to leave and get help find this at all whatsoever. And all the oppressors who's using religion to justify their horrendous actions, they'll all be accountable to Allah as it is. Samra, is there anything about your works that you want our listeners to know about, any organizations? We will be dropping all your relevant links into the show notes of the episode, but is there anything in particular that you want them to know about? And also, how are they able to get your book? Where can they find your book? So my book is available on Amazon. Uh, so you can order it, read it. Please write to me. My website is just my name, samrasafar.com, and I do respond to emails. Uh, so please contact me through my website. I'm very active on Instagram, so please uh, link to that as well and follow me there and I and I constantly keep putting up 
quotes and doing videos and things on on different topics. And and I have a nonprofit organization, which is Canada based, and it is a mentorship program for abuse survivors to help them build better lives after escaping violence or oppression. So that's called Brave Beginnings. Um, So you're welcome to check out the website. It's bravebeginnings.ca. Keep following and keep in touch. And if you have any other ideas and and I would love to hear from listeners about what they're doing in their lives, perhaps in their schools or communities, etc., to tackle gender-based violence and to break down these stereotypes and myths that propagate this. Because it's those little steps and those little uh, conversations. You know, when you call out somebody who's talking, who's like talking about locker room talk, or you somebody who's who's saying something misogynistic, mm-hmm. or trying to change the thinking of some auntie who's uh, you know justifying abuse in her life or in other people's lives. Like those little steps are are required to create change. So please send me send me what you're doing and tell me about your your challenging these things. And, and uh, th- those are the all the little uh, ways that we can all make a difference. And that's what's going to create change. Inshallah. Thank you so much, Samra, for your valuable time today and for sharing with us such a personal story. So honestly, you know, and we have visited some dark places of your memories. So forgive us if it was too harsh. And thank you so much for sharing. We're truly honoured and we appreciate you so much. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It was really a great heartfelt conversation. And, uh, you know, I think uh, that honesty and that vulnerability is important because that's what makes people feel that, you know, they can connect and, uh, and also uh, makes them feel that they're not alone and they can do it too. Inshallah. Thank you so much. Thank Samar. you so much. Alaikum. We'll keep in touch. Do you feel controlled, belittled or isolated by a partner or family member? This is domestic abuse and it is never your fault. Help is always available and you are not alone. You do not deserve abuse. You deserve support. If you are experiencing domestic abuse, ask for Annie in pharmacies, showing the Ask for Annie logo to get immediate help to call the police or support services. For free helpline support and advice, visit gov.uk forward slash domestic hyphen abuse. You've been listening to Nafisa and Tasneem. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed our show. Don't forget to subscribe, share and review. Follow us on Insta and Facebook at NotAnotherMumPod as well as on Twitter, mum underscore pod. You can also listen to all our pods on www.notanothermumpod.com as well as on all your favourite podcast platforms. Shall we go to bed now? (coughs) Really? I can't cuddle you. I can't fit in your bed. Yes, be awake forever. Good night, children. Say Allahumma. Allahumma. Bismika. Amutu. Wahia. Allahumma. Bismika. Amutu. Wahia.